You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Citizens Church, what an honor to be here with you. I got to be honest, this is truly a gift, truly a joy. 2011, I was serving as the campus pastor of the Village Church in Flower Mound, and I was asked, what is the greatest challenge uh, for the Flower Mound campus moving forward, I said, or the, the greatest opportunity, I should say, for the Flower Mound campus moving forward, and I said, without a doubt, the greatest opportunity that Flower Mound has is a, is a campus planted in Plano, and because uh, we had so many folks that were coming from Plano at that time, and there's such opportunity there, and now to fast forward the tape nine years later, and to see what God has done, and both the campus and now the planting, and even through so much adversity as y'all have walked through, This is truly a gift of God's grace, of what he's doing here in this city and uh, and just the the full circleness to be a part of it here with you today. I'm just overjoyed, so thank you. If you have a Bible, I would love for you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We will dip our toes here a little bit, and the hope is in Revelation here, um, we will find some encouragement, especially in what has been a dumpster fire of a year of 2020. We will find some encouragement here, and uh, I'm going to start, begin by talking about a story. I had a a good buddy of mine years ago told the story of uh, when he was in college at the University of Texas. He he was living in an apartment, a bunch of other dudes were in there with him. They were all broke. They had no money for anything as standard in college, and uh, in fact, they had no furniture. The only furniture they had was slabs of wood with cinder blocks underneath them, Um, and one day he found some extra money that was in a pocket of a coat of his that he did not know he had, which by the way is cardinal sin when you're in college, is to mistake money somehow, somewhere. And they found this and they thought, man, what can we do with it? And he said, it's bonus money at this point. So they agreed as roommates that it'd be great to actually go get some some pretty swank furniture for the apartment. And uh, they decided the most swank furniture that they get were some beanbags. And so that's what they were going to do. You're going to head out. And so he gave that money to two of his roommates who were going to go out, grab some cool beanbags, bring them in. And uh, he said the minutes then turned into hours. And they, they had been gone almost the entire day. And he didn't know what they did. They thought maybe they took off to Mexico with his money or leaving the country, whatever. I don't know. But they eventually came back. And he said it was the craziest thing. They came back, and when they showed up at the door, rather than having beanbags in their hands, what they came back with was a ferret. (laughs) Like, that's what they went out. He said it was like this reverse Jack and the Beanstalk story. It's like I sent you out actually four beans, beanbags, and you came back with a ferret. And it was this ultimate story of them getting sideswiped, and I don't have time here to talk about the number of detours that exist between beanbags and ferrets to land at that point, but it served as this beautiful picture, this awful picture, of what it's like even for us as the church to be sent out by God on mission for one thing and along the way get distracted to the point that we end up settling for ferrets on the mission of God. And no text may be greater than this than the one we're going to see in Revelation chapter 2 of a church that can have everything right and yet if we're not careful miss the one thing that is most required of us. And so in Revelation chapter 2 we're going to look through the lens of the church at Ephesus. In the book of Revelation this 
This prophetic book in the New Testament begins by Jesus Christ speaking to seven different churches that were in Asia Minor of that day, which was modern-day Turkey. And these seven churches, they were on a postal route um, uh, there in, in western Turkey. And of all the churches there, Ephesus gets the most press because Ephesus, outside of the church of, in Jerusalem, no church is most prominent in your New Testament like that of Ephesus. Ephesus, 70% of your New Testament is either written to Ephesus or from Ephesus. It's a massive church. It's a port city uh, right on the western coast of Turkey. And like most port cities, even here in the States, um, they, are, they are filled with a diverse population of people because as a port city, so much trade, goods, traffic flow through these port cities, much like um, Seattle or New York or L.A., uh, you have these port cities where these goods are coming in, and along with those come in a blend of ideologies from all over the world, a blend of practices, a blend of religions and cult practices come invading into these port cities like none other, and Ephesus was no exception. Ephesus was a very dark place. It's a very dark city spiritually. It was kind of Seattle and Vegas mixed into one place dark spiritually. There was all kinds of cult practices there. In fact, most notably was the cult worship of the Greek goddess Artemis, later to be copied and pasted by the Romans as the goddess Diana. And there they worshiped the Greek goddess of Artemis, who was the goddess of the hunt, the goddess of fertility, and they would build what would end up being one of the seven wonders of the world, which was this massive temple to worship Artemis. And people from all over the globe at that time would come in to worship there. And so it was filled with this cult practice. And if you remember, uh, in Acts chapter 19, the Apostle Paul goes to visit Ephesus. And he is one of the first to come in and share the gospel of Jesus Christ in the darkness of this place. And one of the encounters he had that just proved the, the spiritual cult practices that were there was a demonized person who was trying to be exercised by seven sons of one Sceva. Sceva was a Jewish high priest. So you these Jewish exorcists that come in trying to cast out this demon. They're trying to mimic what they had saw in the ministry of the Apostle Paul through the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they're trying to do this apart from Christ. And this demonized individual has the demon actually say to these seven sons, these seven exorcists, he says, listen, I, I've heard of Jesus Christ. I know who Jesus Christ is. I've heard of the Apostle Paul, but I'm sorry, who are you? And in that moment, rather than the demon being exercised, the demon then jumps out and pounces on these seven dudes, beats them upside the head, and strips them naked right there in the midst of Ephesus. Now, I don't know what a bad day is for you, but when you're beaten up by a demon and left naked in the middle of the streets, it's not off to a good day. And right then, you can see a taste of just the wicked practices that are in the demonic forces that are in this place. It's the reason why the Apostle Paul will write an entire chapter in Ephesians chapter 6 to the church at Ephesus about the powers of darkness that are all around them, but yet the triumph of the power of Jesus Christ through the Spirit. And yet the Apostle Paul, in the midst of this place, goes on to share the gospel, and you see something happen in Acts 19 
that is unreal. In droves, people begin repenting of their false idolatry and their false worship. And they even bring their books of magic and incantations and they burn them in the center of the city and they repent. Like, let me just sermon within a sermon real quick. You want to talk about seeing false practices shut down in this city? You want to talk about seeing uh, pagan practices and sexual immorality and sex trafficking and prostitution and what are corrupt businesses being shut down? The answer, unlike any other answer, is a preaching and proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to seeing hearts of lives transformed that they no longer need those things anymore for their sufficiency Even so much so in Ephesus, there was a silversmith by the name of Demetrius who made silver shrines that you would purchase on your way to the worship of Artemis. And that business began to shut down because they didn't have enough clientele anymore because so many hearts had been rendered to Jesus Christ. And so in that moment, we see the city transformed and and out in the midst of this dark place is the birth of Christ church in Ephesus that has a unashamed devotion to Jesus Christ, exalting the name of Jesus and committed to the mission of Christ in that city. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And then what happens is about 30 years later, we're going to get an update on this church from Jesus Christ. How has this church fared over the last 30 years? And in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus himself will address this church. And what I want you to understand is in the book of Revelation, the seven churches that are there in chapters 2 and 3, every single church, the first verse begins with with a description of who Jesus is in relation to the specific context of that city and the church within that city. Who is Jesus to this city? Now, here's what I really want you to understand in order to understand verse 1. As much darkness was in that city with Artemis and the cult practices, the greatest threat in that city to the church was actually the emperor of Rome. The emperor of Rome at the time that this was written was the emperor Domitian. Domitian is one of the wickedest emperors that was out there. He would put Nero to shame in terms of his persecution of Christians. And what Domitian would do, Domitian would sign every letter that he would write in his decrees to the Roman Empire, he would sign it as Lord and God. He wanted to be worshipped as God. He didn't like the fact that Artemis was being worshipped in Ephesus, so you know what he did? He had a temple built in Ephesus. If you go to Ephesus today, you can still see the foundation of this temple. He had a temple built for himself that the people would go and worship him there. This is how wicked this man was in Ephesus. And what he would do is he would actually, in the Agora, which was the shopping district in Ephesus, he would make men and women take a mark of the emperor that in order to buy and sell goods, you would have to carry that mark. This guy was so awful to his citizens that his nickname was not Lord and God. His nickname became the Beast. That's how awful this guy was. In fact, even after he died, he he was written out of the books. He was issued by the Roman citizens a damnatio memoriae, which means condemned of memory. 
If you go to Ephesus today, there are many monuments that have all the emperors of Rome on it, and his is the only name that is etched out by the people. They wanted nothing to do with this guy, and even so much so, this guy viewed himself as God, that when he, he actually had a young son who died, and he was grieving the loss of his son, but what he chose to do is he chose to deify his son. He had his son's image minted on all the coins for Ephesus, and it was a picture of his son surrounded by seven stars. It was the seven stars of Ursa Major, which is the, we would know it as the Big Dipper, And it was as if to symbolize the fact that his son and his family line are sovereign over eternity. They are the ones who rule and reign not only over Ephesus, but over every aspect of this earth. And he demanded to be worshipped. And so with that in mind, in verse 1, Jesus is going to write to his church. We get a picture of who Jesus is against that backdrop. Listen to these words in verse 1 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, I want you to write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, we know from chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, that we know what those stars represent. They represent seven angels. Many scholars believe it also that's indicative of seven pastors over those seven churches. And the lampstands are the churches themselves. The menorahs represented the light of every church, its power, its influence of that church for the gospel within the city that it was in. And here, Jesus is represented as the sovereign one over all these churches, over all of Ephesus. Many view this as a punk down to Domitian. Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Jesus is the one who rules and reigns over eternity. And Jesus is the one whom his very presence is the one that illumines the influence of his churches in the cities that they find themselves in. And this is Jesus saying right out of the gate to the church at Ephesus, be encouraged. I am the one who rules and reigns. I am the one who empowers your church to stand in a dark day. I've got you. And then he begins to write to them. And I want you to notice right out of the gate, Jesus is going to commend this church in four different areas. How has this church fared over the last 30 years? Four areas where this church has excelled. You see the first one in verse 2. When he says, I know your deeds, and I know your toil, and I know your perseverance. In other words, this is a church who over the course of the last 30 years has not ceased in doing good. The work of their hands has been committed to righteousness. It has been committed to the deeds of holiness, the deeds of God in midst of the city that they find themselves in. They have not let off that gas in 30 years. They have been committed to these deeds, and these deeds are great. There's a second area, though, that they're commended in at the end of verse 2. And he says, and I also commended you that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and yet they are not. And you found them to be false. 
In other words, this is a church who over the course of the last 30 years has not allowed themselves to be tossed by every wind and wave of doctrine that sweeps through Ephesus. All the ideologies that float through that city, this church has guarded against what is true and what is false. They have held to the Word of God. They have elevated sound doctrine and they have elevated theological truth with precision in the midst of a very secularized day. They have done what John the Apostle asked them to do. Remember John the Apostle after Jerusalem fell in 70 AD, everybody was scattered. John recentered his ministry in Ephesus until the day that he died. And in Ephesus, he wrote his letters. He wrote the Gospel of John and he wrote his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in 1st John chapter 4, verse 1, he wrote these words. He said, test the spirits, church. Test the spirits to see if they are of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And Jesus now says, you've done just what John asked you to do. You've tested the spirits, you've exposed false teaching, and you've guarded what is true. But there's a third thing that he commends them on. You see this in verse 3. You also have perseverance. And you have endured for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. This is a church who over the course of 30 years had suffered much hardship, much adversity, much affliction, and much persecution. And yet through it all, they have stayed the course. They have not compromised. They have not drifted from this. They have exalted the name of Jesus above every other name that could ever be named in Ephesus. Over Artemis, over Domitian, they have, ex they have exalted the name of Jesus Christ and have persevered in his name. And Jesus commends them for this. And then there's a fourth thing that is celebrated. And this one actually comes a little later. You have to jump down to verse 6. In verse 6, he calls out this fourth commendation. He says, and yet this you also have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, Nicolaitans, Nicolaitans embraced, they were known for embracing an early form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was this idea that the body, everything made of matter is evil, but the spirit is good. And they would just separate them. And they'd say, basically, you can do whatever you want with the body. It doesn't matter. You can go engage in immorality. You can pursue the lusts of your flesh. And you can still worship Jesus. It's the best of both worlds. They took platonic thought and they had this dualistic mindset that the matter is evil, spirit's good, and you just combine these two because they're really they're separate, so you can just do whatever you want. And what Nicolaitans did, some of the old church fathers, don't know if this is true or not, they held that may of this may have come from one of the early deacons in Acts chapter 6, Nicholas, who eventually departed from the faith and became a cult leader. We don't know if that's true or not, that's where they got their name or not, but nonetheless, this, Jesus says, is a church that in the midst of a day of compromise, where there is continual voices telling you, it's okay, you can worship Jesus and do whatever you want with the lust of your flesh. This church would not embrace that immorality. This church would stand strong against the tide of secular, liberal, immoral thought of their day that would push, try to 
push them towards compromise, but they would not compromise. They hated what Jesus hates, which was synchronistic immorality, and they held strong. Now, think about that. That's four things that Jesus celebrates right there. Think about that kind of church for a moment. Wouldn't that be great if that was, if Citizens Church was known by embracing some of these things, that you're sold out for truth, willing to be persecuted for the name of Jesus, you'll defend the holiness and the glory of Christ, you'll be on mission, serving the needs of the people around you and the good deeds that come from the Christian faith. Can you imagine being a church that is known for those things over the course of 30 years? You're going, yes, sign me up for the next membership class. I want to be a part of a church like that. I mean, you go, what a church, but yet with all those things hitting in stride. In verse 4, Jesus says, I have this one thing against you. Of all these things that you're doing well, there's one thing that is so majorly off right now. And that is you have left your first love. You've walked away from your first love. Now, real quick, what is it? What does Jesus mean by first love? What was, what was the church at Ephesus? What was their first love? And we don't have to interpret this because Scripture already does it for us. John, again, when he wrote to the churches of Ephesus in 1 John 4.19, he made a profound statement when he said, Church, the only reason we know what love is, the only reason that we know how to love is because he, Jesus Christ, first loved us. The first love of the church of Ephesus is and will always be Jesus Christ. The first love of ours, far above our marriages, our dating relationships, our love for our sons and daughters, love for other family members, even friendships or roommates. The love that supersedes all love is the love that was demonstrated by the Father through the Son on the cross. When Jesus died for us, as Romans 5 says, while we were still sinners, while we were helpless and ungodly, God showed his love for us by sending Jesus to the cross. That's how much God loves us, that he would give his own son Jesus for us. That was Ephesus' first love was Jesus Christ, and yet they have walked away from that love. And, you, and this is ironic, too, because, by the way, in Paul, when he wrote the letter, the book of Ephesians, when he wrote that, do you know what the very last verse is in the book of Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24, Paul concludes that letter by saying this, Grace be with all of you who love with an unabandoning love. This is a church that launched so strong. Paul even mentions, your love for Jesus is so strong, it's unabandoning. And yet 30 years later, Jesus says, you did the very thing that you were first commended for. You left the love that first loved you. Now you go, you step back from this, you go, man, how is this even possible? How is it possible a church can be so bold for Jesus Christ, can be so staunch in their theology, so firm in their doctrinal foundations, so committed to zealous deeds in the name of Jesus, and yet not love the very one they're defending? 
Like, how does that even happen in a church? I want you to put this in marital terms for just a moment. Lower, lower it here and just put this in human terms. Imagine a marriage where a woman has been married to her husband for 30 years. And this woman, every day, publicly promotes the ideology of marriage, the institution of marriage. Every day posts on social media how awesome the institution of marriage is, who, who brags about a covenant commitment in marriage, who talks about how important it is to be faithful in marriage and not depart from the covenant of marriage, who brags about the husband that she's married to and how serious the vow is and promotes marriage to everyone she knows. She won't tolerate alternatives to marriage, just the marriage that God has created, teaches workshops and hosts conferences on marriage and how beautiful it is and how we should be so zealously committed to the institution of marriage. And yet you find out there's only one problem. She actually left her husband 30 years ago. Like how ludicrous would that be to see someone, to see a bride so staunchly defending the institution of marriage, but yet in her own heart had walked away from the bridegroom so long ago. Jesus says the same is true with the church right here in Ephesus. And your staunch commitment to the truths about me, somewhere along the way you left me in the affections of your heart. And you got to ask in the church, how is it possible to have all these other things right and yet miss this one thing? And yet the truth is, is we see it all the time. Just as we see in so many marriages that start out as a friendship that caught romantic fire and are so beautiful and that over time somehow drift into butler and maid mode, we've all seen or maybe even experienced those hard realities. It's not any different with the church as well. A church that can begin with such romantic flame for the Lord who has loved us, and yet, if not careful, begin to drift somewhere along the way in our devotion to Him. And you see this. This is the epitome of religiosity. Churches that begin by being so stirred by what it is God has done for us and yet somehow begin reversing those roles along the way to where we're more impressed by what it is now that we can do for God. And you slip into these camps of legalism. You slip into these camps of workspace performance. Nothing has really exposed this in my lifetime as a follower of Christ like what I've seen even during COVID. And maybe you can identify with this. I've seen it in my own heart, and I've certainly seen it in the church that I pastor as well, is that in COVID, as a church, we have had so many of our rhythms disrupted. I mean, just look around right now. Spaced out, wearing masks, folks online, not even sure when it's safe to come back. Some folks, you know, it just it's all over the place right now. And so many of our rhythms have been disrupted. And what I'm seeing at an all-time level is in the church a disparity even in one's own faith. And I think what it's done and what it's done in me is expose certain areas where I realize I have been more, my joy has been more dependent upon the structures of the church rather than the Messiah of the church. Where I have found myself really weaned to the forms, not the function of the church. 
And even having this conversation with Snets backstage before, just he had to miss staff retreat here, this, um, here recently and exposing with his own heart of how much he was dependent upon joy being rooted in that event rather than the joy that comes by being rooted in Christ, much like the lyrics we sing in the worship song Cornerstone that I dare not trust in the sweetest frame. I don't want to put my trust in, in the frame but holy trust in Jesus' name. Like that's where our joy is found. That's where our affections are to be kindled. And yet if we're not careful over time, we can slip into our tether being loosened. I've seen this happen. The illustration of indigenous cultures, one of the ways that they would capture wolves uh, is by taking a, a blade of a knife And what they would do in the wintertime in order to catch a wolf is they would take that blade and they would dip that blade in blood. And then they would dip it in the snow to freeze the blood. And then they'd put another coat of blood on and then back in the snow and keep repeating this until there's a thick coat of blood on the blade of that knife. And then what they would do is they would turn the blade right side up, put the handle in the ground, and then go to bed. And throughout the night, the wolves would come. And the wolves would smell that blood. And the wolves would get up to the blood and they would begin to sniff it and then they'd begin to lick it. And then over time, they'd begin to lap that blood faster and faster and fast, working themselves into a frenzy and not even know that the whole time they're actually drinking their own blood. And then the wolf would die. And I have seen in my own heart the work of the enemy, even in this season we're in right now and even outside of COVID to so lure us into putting our affections on so many lesser things that are not the true source of our joy, and we will amuse ourselves to death in those things. We will drink of those things so deeply, and we don't even know we're drinking our own blood. This is what happens to a church that is so staunchly committed to the name and the truth of Jesus but has allowed their affections of the love of Jesus to wane. Now, the question is, when we find ourselves there, and I don't know if you're there right now, I've had my moments. I don't think I'm the only one who has struggled in my faith and having seasons where my joy and my my devotion to Christ has drifted and waned. But if, if you're there right now, or if you will be there, what do you do when you are? How do we get this thing course corrected? Well, I'm glad you asked. Jesus tells us, There's an answer to this if you're the church that finds yourself there. In verse 5, Jesus is going to give a threefold exhortation to riding our affection where it truly belongs in Jesus Christ. When he says these words, I want you to remember from where you have fallen. I want you to repent. And then I want you to go do the deeds you did at first. And those three things are key to a dislocated and wandering heart. When you find yourself with a dislocated heart, whether it's in your marriage or your relationship with Christ, the first thing that you have to do, Jesus says, is you have to go back. And you've got to figure out where the the train of your heart derailed, so to speak. You're going to have to go in and go, what were the thieves that came in and stole your affections? Now, for some of us, I think there are good things uh, and there are painful things that can both steal our affections. Painful things, maybe a diagnosis, maybe the death of a loved one, 
maybe a bad breakup you went through or a divorce you walked through, maybe a loss of a job that you went through, maybe just COVID itself, a horrible pandemic, pandemic that comes in. And somewhere along the way, if you're honest and you go back and go, when, when is the last time that my heart was fueled with joy and affection over what God has done for me through Jesus Christ and the joy of my salvation? When's the last time I felt that? And then you begin going, what is it that derailed it? And oftentimes you're going to find there are those painful things that the, the enemy used as leverage on you to rob your joy in Christ. Sometimes it's not a painful thing at all. Sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's not the loss of a job. It's gaining a job that actually took your focus away from Jesus and your affections away. Sometimes it's a new relationship that becomes more objectified than Jesus Christ is in your life. Sometimes it's a hobby, it's a sport, it's a, a craft that you love and become over-obsessed with to where in the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, a good thing becomes this ultimate thing that begins robbing our affections. Wherever it is, Jesus says you're going to have to do some inventory. You're going to have to go back and figure out who those thieves were that stole your affections. But the second thing that you have to do is you have to break up with those thieves. And this is what Jesus says when he says repent. Repentance always begins biblically with confession, which is agreeing with God that what I have been pursuing in my heart is not where my greatest joy is found. Even though these may be good things, even though these may be immoral things, I have allowed my joy to, to drift towards them rather than Christ. And I need to then acknowledge that, and then I need to break up in my heart with those things. Sometimes it may be a physical breakup, but Almost always it has to be an internal breakup of a heart that begins transferring its trust from that lesser thing now to the greater thing, which is Jesus Christ, and rerouting my joy in Him. And that is repentance, going in the other direction from those things. And then once you've done that, Jesus then, then says, once that repentance has happened, reconciliation is now in place. Now you go back and do the deeds you did at first. And that's interesting language, by the way, because remember, one of the things this church was commended for, even in their dislocated heart, was their deeds. And he says, go back and do the deeds now. So the deeds haven't changed. The deeds are the same. What's changed is the motivation that's driving them. We're no longer am I doing these deeds because I feel like I need to earn something. I'm doing these deeds because I've already received it. I'm doing these deeds not because this is another box to check, but because this is the overflow of a heart that has been fueled by the love of God through Jesus Christ in my life that transcends all other loves, that makes me want now not to serve Jesus, not out of duty, but out of delight for him, rooted in him. And so Jesus steers the church back in this direction, and thus ours should as well, to where we now pursue Christ as our ultimate joy. And can I just say, by the way, all of this, when you do this, this is not legalism. A lot of times I see so many folks that want to confuse legalism with discipline. These are two different things. Legalism is when you do things, wrote doing things, because I just have to, because that's the only way God's going to be happy with me. That's not what this is. Legalism is doing something because you're trying to earn something. You've already received it. You don't have to earn it. God has already poured out his love for you. There is nothing that you can do that is going to make God love you any more, and there is nothing that you can do that is going to make God love you any less because he doesn't love you based on your performance for him. He loves you based on the performance of his son for you. 
that has clothed us in righteousness. We have received everything that we need in Jesus Christ. There's nothing left to be earned in this moment. So this is not legalism. This is discipline, which is an obedience that is fueled by knowing, as the the hymnist once said, prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. That's who I am. I'm a sheep that is constantly wanting to wander. And discipline is training my heart to pursue where I know my joy is found. I know this is good. I know this is right. I know this is what God has designed for my flourishing. And I'm just going to teach my heart that that's where his joy is found. And eventually my heart will come to experience it. And this is what Christ has called us to do. The danger is if we are unwilling to do that. This is where Jesus counsels us at the end of verse 5. He says, if you will not repent, then I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place. Now, what does that mean? To remove a lampstand is to shut a church down. It is to remove its light, to remove its power, to remove its influence of the gospel within the city that it finds itself in. Remember back in verse 1, it was Jesus' presence among the lampstands, the churches, that illumined those churches. And if we walk away from our central adoration and affection for his presence as the sole center of our church, then he is the one who has the sovereign authority to extinguish that power by removing his hand on that church altogether. And that, y'all, is a scary place. It doesn't mean that the physical church will shut down. It just means that its power will be. And I can tell you as a pastor who's pastoring down in Dallas right now, we have dozens of churches all around us that are these, they're just brick and mortar dinosaurs of what used to be. Old school denominations that have just sold out to the culture and they just have literal to zero influence. All they are is simply a philanthropy club at best. And there is no gospel power transforming darkness into light in the communities around us and seeing lives redeemed. And yeah, you may have enough people left to pay your light bill, and keep gathering here, but long since has the hand of God departed from the church. That is a scary place to be. And y'all, my prayer for this church, my prayer for Northway, my prayer for the churches that God has sustained here in Dallas, Texas, my prayer for us is that we would not lose our first love. You can have a lot of things going right, but if this one area is not where it needs to be centered, then we are spending our days chasing ferrets. And so may God continue to sustain us, that we would rest in the promises that he has for us, the love that Jesus Christ has loved us with, his everlasting love that can never be taken away from us. There's nothing that God has shown us his love more than Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for us. And I pray it's that love, that grace that would kindle our affections for Christ and compel us to move forward in serving his kingdom purposes. And understand the last promise that he gives us. We'll close with this in verse 7. Jesus reminds us in verse 7 that this love that he has for us and the love that we have for him, that love is not in vain. Our perseverance in the affections for Jesus Christ promises not only the truest joy in this life, But Jesus reminds us it is also 
will culminate in the reward in the life that is still to come, where this whole thing will culminate in the reward of Christ's full and present presence with us. Right now, we take, we take Christ by faith. There is a day coming, y'all, when we will have him by sight. Revelation 22 plays the tape forward and we see all of a sudden today we don't even need the sun shining anymore because it's the light of God's presence among us for the rest of eternity that will illumine us forever. And in that day, Revelation 22 says, once again, we will get to eat from the tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. All that we have suffered through, all that we have been walking through in the hardships and adversities of the church, all the battle scars we will have will find its healing full and final in Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, it is the tether into the love of Christ that will sustain us now and for God willing, all the way in to that day that is most assuredly coming for us. So church, wherever you find yourself, do not lose hope. Your God loves you with an everlasting love. Take some time this week. Do an old school inventory we used to do at the village back in the day of stirring and stealing. Just begin identifying what are those things in my life lately that have been stealing, that have been robbing my joy for Christ. Identify what those are. And then identify what is it that when I think upon it or when I do it actually stirs my affections for Christ. And zealously commit yourself to that. But let us not lose our flame. Let us be kindled by the joy that we have in Jesus Christ and his love for us, that we might be fueled to stay on mission until the day he returns. Amen? Let's pray to that end. Father, we thank you for this text. I may be the only one in this room who needs it, but Lord, I got to trust by faith that your word tells us we all do. God, would you protect us? Would you guard us against against the drift of our hearts? Guard us from believing the lies of the enemy that there is some greater joy that is attached to a lesser thing. God, may we believe by faith and experience in reality that the truest joy we can have is rooted in the love of Christ. Kindle our affections anew that we might live faithfully on mission for you fueled by that love. We pray for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen.